Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Dutillion Mind. I'm your host, Jason. Hope everyone is having a really good weekend. And to kind of uh, celebrate this month's Black History Month, I would like to dedicate this episode of the synopsis to reading a book by James Baldwin. So what I have planned for, or the the real plan I have for the synopsis uh, arc is to do book reviews and then the uh, random TV or movie reviews here and there. But the main thing was was for it to be a book review uh, series. So I figured the best thing to do was to kick off this series by celebrating Black History Month. And to do that, I'm going to go through and give a a review of James Baldwin's Notes of a Native Son. This came out in 1955, and it is a collection of some of his essays. I think there's about 10 essays in here. Uh, wide range of topics that he talks about, but at the same token, it's um, connected through the... Uh, struggle that is the civil rights movement. And so I figured I would kind of sit down this afternoon in honor of Black History Month and run through the different essays that he's got in this book and uh, review them and just quickly discuss them and uh, kind of help bring the uh, the month to a close as we kind of remember you know, a lot of the, uh, the struggles that uh, people of color had to go through in order to get closer to being seen as equal in this country and through other parts of Europe. So uh, without further ado, here is uh, my book review on Notes of a Native Son by James Baldwin. Uh, The first essay that he writes is called Everybody's Protest Novel. And kind of the overall gist is it's kind of centered around how life and humanity is, is beautiful but is destroyed when we start uh, categorizing everything and trying to fit everything into nice, neat little categorizations. Um, And he kind of talks about how categorization constrains us with lies and myths and false social expectations, whether for ourselves or others. Um, And he also talks, too, about how it prevents us from being able to truly find our true selves and then also being that true self as well. So that's kind of where he's hinting at is that, uh, you know, society tends to come with a lot of baggage and, and trying to fit people into stereotypes or categorizations in order to try to make sense of the world tends to be more harmful than it is positive. Um, so that's kind of what he's, he's uh, hinting at. And... He's linked this to the black experience in the United States and how he recalled how black people throughout the ages, whether it was during America's colonial time period or throughout the early uh, decades of the American Republic, and even after slavery was uh, abolished, uh, all the way up until the civil rights era, since, like I said, he published this in 1955, right at the kickoff of the uh, civil rights era. Um, 
he had mentioned that part of this and how it deals with black people centered around the idea that uh, black people have been expected to act white. They've uh, been expected to think like a, a white person and to basically conform and contort to the white social norms in order to get some sort of feeling or, or glimpse of, of a feeling like they are, you know, that they that they belong in the United States. Um, and as a result, black people throughout the ages have felt that they've had to pass as something else rather than who they are. And he gave an example of a couple who... Uh, um, they were black Americans, but they could pass as white, uh, because they had lighter skin tones. And so that's what they did is, um, the wife basically passed as white and the husband passed as being Spanish. And so they felt obligated given the American culture to accept their European whiteness and the heritage of their uh, European uh, whiteness, but not the African portion of it. So they were of, of mixed descent, and even though they were black Americans, they, were, they felt like they were obligated, in order to feel like they fit in with society, ignore their black history, but only focus on their white history. And... I think we can all agree that that is something that people of color still struggle with today. Um, I think you see that quite often where people are expected to conform to white America and the white cultural norms that we set before everybody else and expect them to follow. And I think that uh, kind of getting a glimpse of this you know, especially given how 2020 has came, come and gone and how the years before that have come and gone, even within these last couple of decades and even since uh, 2019, 2009 when Obama became president, the first black president of the United States. I mean, just kind of look at, at the last 12 years or so and you can really see a lot of the stuff still playing out in today's uh world we we still see the same struggles and grappling that people of color have and it's an echo from 1955 when James Baldwin wrote about it so that's kind of what the the first essay was about uh the second one titled many thousands gone uh basically can be summed up i thought very profoundly in this one sentence that he had and that is the story of black people in America is America's story. How black people have been treated and continue to be treated is introspective of how white Americans see and think of themselves. And he kind of he continues on and talks about how the lives of black people have been controlled by the ruling majority based around perceived biases and stereotypes and that if anyone tries to live outside of these expectations and stereotypes, they are harassed primarily because it's the, the frustration of white people who have control over 
the direction of this country and the American cultural norms and societal norms that are expected. And so if people of color do not conform to what they think they should be and they start stepping outside that box, then white people get frustrated, they get mad, they start to basically react. And he talks about that, but then he also talks about how, okay, well, you're feeling frustrated, but black people are feeling a hundredfold the frustration that they cannot actually escape these biases and stereotypes and that they have to bottle up the frustration and the anger and the desire to seek vengeance because they know that they're in a country that, you know, in a way still views them as second-class citizens. They can't air their grievances the same way that white people do. You know, we see that... We saw that in 2020 when people of color were trying to air their grievances yet again. And yet again, it was felt, it was, it fell on on deaf ears when it came to white people as a whole. And so they, you know, James Baldwin was basically echoing, Hey, we are not allowed to voice our frustration, our anger and our rage the same way that white people can because we know we live in a white cu- country that puts white people and their grievances first and everybody else just kind of is ignored. And he also said another profound thing in, in this uh, essay too. He said, black Americans are Americans. Their destiny is the country's destiny. Their experiences is their experience and must be embraced by all. And this holds true even in 2021, 65 some years later. Because if you remember last year in 2020, the big talk was the 1619 Project. And then Trump and white people came out with the 1776 uh, rebuttal. But the, the, the main thing that the, the 1619 Project was, it was basically just telling the American experience through the eyes of anybody and everybody but white people. Because for so long, the history of this country, the narrative of this country has been told through the, the lens and the mouthpiece of a white person. But as we're seeing the demographics change, we're getting more and more stories coming in about how that narrative is not the whole narrative. There's other people, you know, there, there's Asians, there's Native Americans, there's black people. There are a whole bunch of other groups of people that have come here, who were here, and who are here, who have had totally different experiences that they feel has an importance to being told that make up the the story that is America. And as James Baldwin, you know, laid forth 65 years ago, these stories are as what's going to define the destiny of America. 
it's black America, white America, Asian America, all, every single demographic you can think of. We're all going to be coming together and we're going to be forming our destiny. And part of that destiny is a combined history of everybody's perspective, everybody's view, everybody's understanding of what happened and what went down all the way to the current and then beyond. And then coming together and finding a way to say, hey, here is our story. Now, how can we go forward together with this story? So given the kind of year we had in 2020 and right off the bat in 2021 here, I think both of these essays are very profound in terms of how they're talking about the narrative that we're struggling with today still. Um, so that was part two. That was uh, many thousands gone. Um, moving on to part three, the dark is light enough. And um, for this one, he decides to go towards the uh, liberal crowd. And so he starts criticizing uh, liberal Hollywood for taking white the biases and stereotypes of white people that they apply to uh, black people and trying to make them cool, if you will. Now, I'm kind of I'm using cool in air quotes because that's the term that I use for it. But um, basically, that's what he's criticizing liberal Hollywood for doing back in the 50s is trying to take all these white stereotypes and biases that they have for black people and trying to make it hip or cool or kind of like the new thing. And um, he kind of points it towards a uh, movie where it's starring black actors and actresses. And he starts off criticizing the, uh, the movie for applying white norms and behaviors in a sense when it comes to sexuality, but in other aspects, onto black people. Um, and so that's kind of where he covers that information at in that uh, it's basically just a, a movie review, if you will, but he's doing it in the lens of... of uh, the racial tensions that are at the time and how he doesn't appreciate how liberal Hollywood is trying to make black people look just like white people because they're not going to have the same behaviors, the same experiences, the same everything. So if, if the purpose is to try to say, hey, see how we're all connected in some way, okay, that's fine, but don't try to achieve that goal by painting black people in a different light than what they really are. And so that's kind of the, the uh, discussion with uh, the, the dark is light enough. Um, so moving on to um, essay number four. It's called uh, Harlem Ghetto. And... This is kind of focused around him just talking about issues that black people deal with. You know, so he kind of lays it out into a bunch of different categories like economic or financial, uh, social and political, religious and culture. And in a way, this is um, kind of aimed at uh, the black community and black media, if you will, Um and trying to talk to them and say, hey, you know, you need to refocus on what you're doing. And in a way, this is kind of a carryover from the previous essay 
and some of the other essays before that where it talks about how, you know, whiteness is being applied to black people. Because that's kind of what he gets into. Uh, so when it comes to the economic and financial side of things, um, what he's aiming at black media and black entertainment is that uh, they basically need to start covering things that actually apply to the needs of black people. And so when it comes to economic or financial, he discussed how the gentrification of communities and liberal policies that are are put forth by, you know, the liberals, the white liberals, he notices that it favors businesses and other, you know, things that white people value, but not... uh, but not for the things that black people value. And so he talked about how there was a lack of funding for schools that uh, were in black neighborhoods. And how he was upset that the, the quote-unquote aid that white liberals were, were sending were going to things like playgrounds rather than investing what is needed, once again, you know, like infrastructure or... Um, education, jobs. He he really went off on jobs, talking about how, you know, there's food deserts in black neighborhoods and uh, how black families are are really struggling because they have a lack of job security. And he mentioned they're the, you know, how black people are the last hired, but the first fired. And so he was talking about how, you know, when it comes to black media uh, or liberal media, um, and, and how they decide to go about interacting with black Americans to keep them informed, but also to kind of be, uh, you know, an example towards, you know, white America. It's like, hey, you know, we can't be focusing on frivolous things. Here are economic and financial issues. So why don't we talk about that? And he kind of carries that over into the uh, um, the sociopolitical aspect of it as well, where he's talking about how, you know, and criticizing black media because they're starting to emulate the white frivolousness that you would see on, on white shows. Um, and by doing that, I mean, they would not cover the real needs of the, of the people, but they would sit there and try to appeal to the white stereotypes of the black community in order to basically get the white viewership. So basically, he was going after black entertainment saying, hey, you know, stop trying to make us something that we're not just so you can get some more white viewers to come in and and see what's going on because it's superficial. Um, And he's basically saying that even though there's black media and black entertainment uh, structures in place, that black people still are not being able to have a truly uh, black voice in their society. Because once again, they're expected to conform to their white to the white standards, and now this has just kind of jumped the next level to black entertainment, black media, uh, stuff like that. So he feels like even in in the uh, commercial sector, where there is some sort of black uh, um, section of that, even that black section that may be black owned or black operated, you know, or have black. Uh, 
hosts, they're still expected to conform to the white norms that that's basically just not them. Um, and he's also going forward from that saying, you know, the division of the working class based off of race is designed to keep these quote-unquote minority groups down. And he does from there kind of go into a little bit of a uh, uh, breakdown about why um, the black community has an issue with the Jewish community. Talking about how um, the Jewish community at one point was helping, they're kind of, you know, hand in hand with the, the black community when it comes to civil rights and the, the civil rights movement. But then basically once the Jewish community kind of, quote unquote, got theirs, they sold out the, the black people in the civil rights movement because now they were, quote unquote, in with the, uh, um, with the white community. They, they found their white acceptance, and so now they can kind of turn on, uh, on their former black allies. And, um, you know, I was talking with someone else about this earlier, about how that very thing was also done with uh, um, Italians, the Irish even uh, Poles and other Slavic groups, you know, from Eastern Europe, when they would first come to the United States, they were not seen as quote-unquote white. And how these different ethnic groups had to prove that they were quote-unquote white was to basically become the new uh, um, taskmasters, if you will, uh, to put down, you know, black protests, you know, for the civil rights uh, movements and all that stuff. And so that's kind of what he was mentioning with, with the, the Jewish communities is that uh, at one time, you know, hey, we were together fighting for, for equal rights and, and the civil rights movement. And then once you kind of got recognized and, and um, basically uh, accepted by the white community, then you just kind of turned your back on us because you figured, oh, well, we're one of them now. And so kind of to hell with you. And so he did kind of talk a little bit about the... Uh, the division of the working class and how that has been used throughout the decades to cause division, especially when it comes to helping black people and other people of color get to the spot, get to the, the, the table as an equal partner. So, um, that's kind of the breakdown for, uh, this, particular essay for sociopolitical issues as well as economic and financial. The last one is religious or and or cultural and he talks about how black Americans are struggling to create their own their own culture, their own identity as black Americans. Um because they were forced to trade their African cultures for for white ones when they were forced to come over here as slaves. Um the same uh has to do with uh their religious beliefs. He talked about how uh, black Americans have to deal with uh, having their African religions and their and their belief systems um, superseded and wiped out by white Christianity. And how those black Americans who have accepted Christianity as their religion, they still more identify with the Old Testament rather than white Christians who deal with the New Testament and Jesus because black Americans have that, that, that correlation that 
that relation and that, that understanding of the, the struggles of oppression that you see the Jewish people go through in the Old Testament. And so James Baldwin talks about how um, black Americans have to struggle with finding out who they are, who they want to be, because they've had their past African culture and, and practices and, and identity, if you will, taken from them through 400 years or so of slavery. And now they're trying to come up with their own unique identity based off of their unique experiences being over here in the Americas. So that's what the Harlem Ghetto is all about, is discussing these issues that black people are facing. And here in 2021, 65 years later, you can see the question still being raised. Who are we as a group? What's our identity? How are we going to, um, you know, find the religious views, the cultural views, the practices? What is it that's going to make us who we want to be? Because we are now black Americans separate from other groups of black people around the world, whether it's West Indians or Africans who are still from Africa. Or anywhere else they may be, you know, maybe even in Europe from some of the other colonial uh, um, outposts the European empires had at one point. And they migrated to Europe to live in the, that uh, home country, if you will, of, the, of that empire that had them as a colony. So they're trying to figure out who they are as black Americans. And... The uh, kind of the, I guess the aim is that, hey, if you're going to be considered a black uh, media or a black entertainment source, then you should start asking these tough questions whether the, rather than just kind of playing into the white American uh, um, stereotype or, or uh, cultural norm that they expect everybody else to have for themselves at the expense of their own um, culture or quest to find their own identity. Um, so that's the Harlem Ghetto. Uh, the next one is Journey to Atlanta. And once again, um, James Baldwin does a really good job of going after, especially here in 2020 and 2021, the, the, the groups that have historically been seen as groups that have been favorable towards civil rights movement, equal rights, and all that stuff. And so Journey to Atlanta is really his kind of uh, finger-wagging at progressives and the Progressive Party for their uh, um, bullshittery and um, undertones of racist behavior as well. And so he kind of starts off with the... Once again, the the white stereotype that uh, black people do not trust that black that black people trust politicians because they think they'll get something from them, and he makes it very clear that that's not the case. Black people do not trust politicians, um, but he also said too that black people, generally as a whole, are much more sober about what to expect about uh, politicians and their promises that black people realize, hey, you know, this guy's sitting here, he's making a lot of promises here on the campaign, and uh, 
chances are, you know, once he gets in the office, if he gets in the office, those aren't really going to happen. Especially if they if their promises about you know black people and helping them and all that stuff, and so basically it's kind of dispel this whole idea that uh, you know black people are are stupid or that they are you know being deceived and don't realize it. When in fact he's saying, no, it's just that we're trying to hedge our bets the best the way that we can. We're trying to pick the lesser of two evils. And if he's, we've had to do this throughout our whole existence here on this continent. Hedge our bets, try to figure out the lesser of two evils, and realize that none of these white politicians, whether conservative, liberal, or progressive, truly have our backs. So we have to figure out which ones are going to be the ones that hurt us the least. And so that's kind of what he starts it off with. Um, he also recognizes, too, that once again, that uh, no political party, just like how no politicians truly have black people's interests at heart. And in this essay, his aim was at the Progressive Party and how, you know, just the experience that uh, he's about to tell in this essay demonstrates that at the very core, even the progressives and the progressive party can't say they really have the black community's best interests at heart. And so what he does, he kind of gives a, an example, and this is an example of a, a black group, a singing group, that was hired by the progressive party to play some songs, you know, and do some... Uh, um, outreach that way, you know, talking about uh, um, equality and civil rights and the civil rights movement and kind of bringing everything together so that, you know, the progressives can show, hey, we are on the same page with the civil rights movement. Here's our aims. And so he talks about how when this party gets down to it, the, the singing group gets down to Atlanta, their whole game plan, their whole contract, if you will, is completely changed by the white, rich aristocrats who are funding this um, campaign down in Atlanta. And so what starts off with this this uh, black group, this singing group, being hired to do X amount of um, concerts, if you will, at different uh, public events, churches, stuff like that, to get the word out, to get people interested in, in the progressive party, you know, basically to make it a viable party that does actually um, profess the best wishes for the black community. Instead, what happens is, is that the, at this whole campaign down in Atlanta, these white, rich aristocrats basically take over the whole thing and they basically put the singing group into the role of the volunteer, the canvasser. And what canvassers are is basically they're the uh, campaigners in today's speech. They go from door to door knocking, talking to people, ask them, have you considered voting for the progressive party or the blah, blah, blah party? That's basically what canvassing was back in the day in the, in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. It was basically just door to door campaigning in today's terms. Um... And that's what basically they became volunteered to do. So this black singing group who was supposed to get paid to do X amount of concerts 
and a whole bunch of other perks, you know, or bonuses to doing the job or the contract, if you will. They got reverted down to volunteers working for free, barely any kind of a stipend per day for uh, for work, going around knocking, being uh, canvassers or, or uh, campaigners. And so they were getting frustrated that they were, that their whole contract to get paid and to go from church to church, event to event in the uh, Atlanta, Georgia area was being ignored. And... Um, so finally, at one of the big, bigger balls or one of the bigger events of the whole campaign in Atlanta, uh, they finally got their chance to get up and sing. But because they had been out on the road for 10, 12, 13, who knows how many hours every single day canvassing for the prog- Progressive Party, their voices were hoarse and they couldn't perform as well. And so that got the, uh, especially the uh, the the, the uh, head... Uh, aristocrat, some white lady that, uh, you know, was talking to them more directly and changed the game plan. That got her mad because, well, we paid for you guys to come down here and be, and you're supposed to be this great singing group, but your voices are hoarse and all this other stuff. Basically got really, uh, you know, rude with them. And when they kind of said, hey, you're the one who changed the deal on us and started putting up a little bit of a protest, um... Basically, she just sent them home without getting paid for anything. Um, it was basically a bait and switch tactic that these white aristocrats, especially this 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 main squeeze, this this white lady, pulled on them. And then when they uh, protested about it and then refused to do some other singing gigs because they weren't getting paid for the time they had already been down there, she just basically forced them to leave, you know, and and get find their own way back home up north. Um, to uh, go back home, not getting paid, not basically their whole contract was totally blown out the water, and basically that's what this uh, ch- this whole essay was about is how even the quote unquote progressives who are supposed to be seen as the front runners for equal rights and and the civil rights movement, when it comes to the the aristocrats who the, the 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 secret donors if you will behind the party it's the same old thing they said as the liberals and either the uh um democrat or republican party or even the conservatives and in, in either the democrat or republican party so that was basically just kind of like one big eye opener that uh James Baldwin wanted to um wanted to throw out there and say hey you know you can put a title about being progressive or or you know, new age or whatever it is you want to do to try to make it look like you are, you know, with the cause. But until, you know, you're down and getting dirty in the trenches, then we get to really see if you're progressive or new age or open-minded or liberal or whatever it is. And he's saying, you know, Henry Wallace may have been uh, um, a really progressive guy with really progressive uh, positions, you know, and he may very well have been a really nice guy and, and uh, for the cause, but the donors behind him, the white aristocrats, they weren't, and it showed. And so that's a Journey to Atlanta. Um, I thought it was pretty uh, pretty interesting to read just to see just how, you know, there's always, you know, people are always going to be on their, on their A-game to make sure that whoever they're talking to, especially if they're white, doesn't screw them over in some way. 
Uh, moving on to number six, the sixth essay of the book is the self-title Notes of a Native Son. And Notes of a Native Son, this essay is kind of a, um, a meshing of the personal internal strife that James Baldwin has, especially around the passing of his father, as well as the racial and social strife that he sees all around him from protests that are happening. Um, it kind of starts off with him reminiscing about watching his father just mentally decline throughout the ages. Um, and, uh, but, but also discussed how when he came back to see his father one last time, uh, on a, basically on his deathbed, he, he he basically was recalling the hatred that he had for his father. Um, even though, like I said, it was on his deathbed, he just, he felt that there was a big animosity between the two because he never felt like his father um, cared about him, was proud of him, supported him in what he did. Um, he always just felt like there was a big rift between himself and his father. And so... Um, even though he did have certain biases or understandings of what his father should look like, even on his deathbed, you know, coming back home and seeing his father the way he was on his deathbed, really frail and old and, and uh, near death, you know, it, it shook him in a way that, you know, I was like, well, this is not who I pictured my father to be. He's not the man that I used to know. He's somebody else now. And that kind of parlayed over into what was going around, going on around him, um, especially since that his father ended up dying on his birthday. And so not only did his father die, but was buried and had this, this service on his birthday. So he couldn't really celebrate his birthday the way he was hoping to, but not like it mattered because of all the, the, the chaos that was going around on around him. And so while he's going through like these inner issues surrounding the estrangement that he had with his father, he did recall um, an experience he had when he was out on the town with one of his friends. And, and he remembered the, the rage that he felt after he was denied twice for being black and how at the second time he was already really frustrated from the first time around, especially because he said it was in New York State, it was in the North. You know, and, and kind of he had this expectation like, well, this only happens in the South, and I can't believe it's happening to me in the North. And so he was already fuming when he went into the second restaurant to have a coffee and a bite to eat. And when the waitress came over to him and said, we don't serve black people here. Of course, I use a different word, but that's what I'm going to use as black people. Um, when she said, well, we don't serve black people here, he got so outraged, he flung a uh, coffee cup at her. And right when he did that, he realized, oh, crap. You know, I'm in this all-white neighborhood, all-white diner, pretty much. You know, and I just threw a cup at a white girl. And so, basically, it was him reminiscing about the, the fear turn or the, the anger and rage turned to fear as he realized, oh crap, I may not be in the South, but I got a feeling that the outcome is going to be just the same. You know, I, you know, assaulted a, a white girl, if you will, just by throwing a, a coffee mug at her. And, uh, as a result, 
these white people are going to come, they're going to try to find me and hang me. And so he kind of relived the whole experience of him running throughout the town, trying to get out of there and, and not get caught, you know, and, and then going to his uh, father's funeral. And he kind of relives the, the, uh, the funeral where he starts to remember, hey, you know, I'm here amongst all these friends and family and they're starting to tell me all these different stories about who he was, you know, as as a man before he started declining mentally. And James Baldwin kind of discovers towards the end of the funeral that his heart becomes softened as he starts to remember more and more of the good experiences that he had with his father. And then he started to remember, oh, yeah, you know, he did have pride in me. He even told me these these things many times. And so he kind of came to the realization that, you know, his father was proud of who he was as a man, and that helped ease the uh, the strain and the uh, the the heartache, if you will, that he was going through at the loss of his father. And he used that situation to basically wonder if the rights that are happening all around while his father is being buried and laid to rest. He wondered if this same revolution that he had regarding his father and hating his father, if it could also be applied to the racial tension and the protests and riots and that, you know, the two sides, black and white, could come together and start to love each other and work together and realize, hey, we're in this together. We do have pride in each other as to who we are because we are, we cannot be re- divided apart. Our our histories and our, our uh, um our fate, if you will, as Americans is intertwined. And so we're going to have to learn how to love and get along with each other. And kind of that's how you see the end of Notes of a Native Son is that he's taken the the loss of his father and the realization that there was a good connection between them and start applying it to the tensions that America was facing based around race. Um I think you can see a lot of that now, even today in, in 2020, 2021, and I'm going to assume into the next couple of years, is all these stories where, it, you know, you have to ask yourself, you know, there's got to be a better way. There's got to be a way that we can come together and unite and fully make black people and other people of color feel like they are equal and important and that all of our experiences and histories, even just as it applies to the American experience, are important and should be explored by everybody. Um, so that's kind of how Notes of Native Son, that essay is wrapped up. Um, moving on to Encounter on the Scene, uh, Black Meets Brown, is basically his, uh, his kind of uh, observations about what black Americans um, experience with their interactions with others in Paris. And he kind of breaks it down into three, basically. It's, you know, he, he kind of talks about the, uh, the experiences that they deal with uh, other white Americans when they meet overseas somewhere and that there's still some racial tension that's there, but because they're in a foreign country, that intensity is lowered down quite a bit, you know. Uh, and he mentions that, you know, when, when he met white Americans over in Paris... You know, they had that attitude of, you know, they're surprised to see him there, but also it was kind of a little bit of a, you know, a, a letdown for, for white Americans because they thought, oh, we had, 
you know, we left you behind in America. What are you doing over here? That type of attitude. And so that's kind of what uh, um, James Baldwin mentioned was kind of the first uh, experience that black Americans had when they were overseas was come across white Americans who still brought their racial tension with them and showed it, but in less tense ways, less intense ways. Um, he's, he also mentioned too, how, um, black Americans had to, uh, deal with the uh, Parisians, uh, natives of Paris because the Parisians would, applied the stereotypes of white America onto black Americans. So there was that uh, confusion by the, the French from Paris in that they would just, oh, you're American? Okay, you're all the same. And so in this case, it was regardless of the, whether the American was white or black, they still held the same stereotypes for them. Um, and then the last uh, interaction that he mentioned too was how black Americans dealt with the alienation that they experienced in terms of not only their experiences, but their culture, their religion, their history, all of that between themselves and then black Africans that came from some of the French colonies in Africa. And so there was that disconnect there. And so he kind of mentioned too about how, you know, this whole American experience that black Americans have it has alienated themselves from their African brothers because they were forced away from them, stripped of their identity, and remolded into uh, something else. And now that they're able to get out and travel again and, and be able to reconnect with others around the world, they start to see that they have an alienation about them. So they feel so. Basically, what he's saying is that Black Americans, whether they're in the United States or or traveling or living abroad, they have an alienation. They have an an alienation with between them and and white Americans, an alienation between white Europeans, and um, an alienation with other Black Africans, and how this whole alienation is part of the experience that black Americans have and how they have to deal with it when, whenever they're traveling. So, um, that's basically the, the pretty, uh, briefing, uh, overall, uh, review of encounters on the scene. Uh, black meets Brown, um, is just the alienation that black people experience when they're, outside the United States, whether it's from fellow white Americans, white Europeans, or other Africans, or black people. Um, well, I'm going to take this time to, to stop now and, and make this a two-part series. We still have three or four more sections to go, so I hope you enjoyed the first part of my synopsis on James Baldwin's Notes of a Native Son, and uh, I will get back to you here shortly with part two. Thank you for tuning in.